0: Hello and welcome to another episode of NBRA New Business and Retail Insights from the Center for Retailing Studies, Mays Business School, Texas A&M University. I'm your host, Venky Shankar, Director of Research and Coleman Chair Professor of Marketing. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome our guest today, Professor Odet Netzer, Arthur J. Sandberg Professor of Business at Columbia University. Odet's expertise centers on building statistical and econometric models to measure consumer preferences and changes in consumer choices, and text mining techniques for business applications. ODED's research has won multiple awards, including the ISMS Long-Term Contribution Award, the John Little Best Paper Award, the Frank Bass Outstanding Dissertation Award, the Paul Green Best Paper Award, the William O'Dell Best Paper Award, and the Gary Lillian ISMS MSI Practice Price Award. ODED sits on several editorial boards of leading journals. ODED teaches several courses, including a novel course entitled Developing Quantitative Intuition. Uh, ODED frequently consults with Fortune 500 and entrepreneurial organizations on strategy, data driven decision making, and marketing research. So welcome, ODED, to this podcast. Delighted that you're joining me today. How have you been in the past pandemic year?
1: Uh, thank you, first. Uh... Thank you for inviting me for this uh, wonderful to be on 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 this webinar and this in initiative and thank you also for this very generous uh, introduction uh, with, su- with such an introduction it can only go downhill from here but uh, thank you for this very no, you,
0: you richly <laughs> deserved it these are all facts so um yeah, yeah. Uh, how was the your year being last uh whole year yeah uh, year?
1: yeah this year has been has been tough on all of us uh, you know uh, i can't wait way to get back to normal to see you among others in person uh, it has been a while uh, so definitely has been a a tough a tough year and a half um you know in terms of uh, we are i think we're all fortunate we have a job we are uh, we can continue to do a lot of what we are doing uh, so to some extent i feel fortunate still that uh, um has been able to continue with a lot of the things that, that i'm doing but definitely um has been tough uh, um in terms of, you know, teaching, for example, at Columbia Business School, we have been hybrid since uh, September, so we have been teaching somewhat in class, somewhat um, online, so in class with some of the students being uh, on, on screen while we are in class. I think there is one learning for us from this, is that at least when it comes to both K to 12, what I see with my kids in school, as well as MBA teaching, uh, in person is not going away anytime soon. I think we, we have learned from this experience the value of actually seeing our our students and the students actually interacting with one another. Uh, so I think it's a big learning for us, whereas there may be a few things that stay when it comes to, to teaching uh, um, in terms of online. I think we'll, we, are, we will be going back and, and we'll definitely have learned about the benefit of actually having the in-person. When it comes to more things, maybe like research, um, I definitely miss the interaction, interaction, bouncing ideas. Um, meeting in conferences um, and b- b- bouncing research ideas, seeing my doctoral students in person and interacting um, with them. Again, we were able to continue our research, but again, value very much the, the value Personal of- Personal interactions, right?
0: In-person <laughs> interactions. I get it. And uh, that's very nice of you to have some key takeaways from the last year and navigating the difficult normal that we have been used to now. I mean, if there is I, one
1: maybe silver lining, I would say it's, it's the family. I was able to spend more time with the family and that's, family, that's really okay. has been the silver lining. Having the, both me traveling less and the kids actually at home uh, has been really an opportunity to spend more time in the, uh, in the Nucleus family. And that this has been actually a positive of the whole thing. If to take something positive from this uh, whole year and
0: a half. Okay, thank you for sharing that. Now I described you uh, in uh, factual terms, how would you like to describe yourself? Um, Maybe however, five words or less, yeah, if it's wow, not okay. too difficult. <laughs>
1: uh, let's see, so yeah, I guess the first one may be embarrassed because I'm embarrassed with these type of exercises, but uh, no, I mean, more seriously, uh, how would I describe myself? I would say if it's one word, it's probably going to be nerd. Uh, if it's two words, it's going to be data nerd kind of the type (laughs) of person that likes to look at data and hopefully see something in it. Uh, Going maybe outside of of professional life, uh, family would be definitely an important uh, uh, word there as well as soccer. I'm I'm an avid soccer fan. Um, And maybe going back to to, to, uh, more of my professional life, uh, curiosity, I guess it's both professional and non-professional. I'm a very curious person, which is probably reflected by the eclectic sets of, topics that I'm, I'm, I'm researching, um, as well as um, something that I think um, maybe a, a, is a characterization of many of us in academia, which is rigor and perf- perfectionism, right? I mean, maybe right. one of the reasons we are on that side of, of the world of business is the need for rigor and perfectionism, um, which pushes us to do this research until we are totally happy with it. Um, Excellent.
0: That's a great description. You know, it's very ironic. You said you're embarrassed by that, but yet you do a lot of research using words, text mining, and you know, uh, those. So you should be comfortable stating in your own words. And but I'm glad that you came out and described yourself. But now, let us to talk a little bit about your research journey. Since you mentioned that uh, you like to do, you're curious. You do like to do r- uh, rigorous, perfect r- research. Uh, how did you get started in research and how's your journey been? What are some of the turning points in your research journey?
1: Sure, and actually that's to some extent relates to, to both curiosity and, and uh, the need p- for perfectionism. I actually started as a consultant uh, right after undergrad, I actually worked in consulting for quite a few years. Um, And and working consulting, uh, I enjoyed it. I think the questions were interesting. A lot of the things we did there. Was it management
0: consulting, sorry? Was it management consulting or technical consulting?
1: It was economic consulting. So it was spatial economic consulting specifically. So best use for land, where to open stores, what type of stores to open in different places. Uh, So This type of consulting Um, was really interesting. I really enjoyed the work there, but uh, a few things that I've learned along the way there that, that pushed me, I would say, to, to academia. One is that the, the problems were super interesting, but the solution to my taste were too simplistic for the complexity of the problem. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what pushed me to say, well, like, I think we can do better than that uh, in terms of developing tools. And, mm-hmm. and, and I realized that academia would be the place to try and develop better tools and, and uh, try to do that all, uh, throughout my career to some extent. A second one has to do with the curiosity, um, and what, for example, academia offer you um, beyond consulting is the ability to study whatever you want, right? And, and right,
0: so you and, can get to pick your topics, right, uh, to a large extent, yeah.
1: And 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 be able to 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 um, satisfy the curiosity, right, on the things that right. you're interested in, as opposed to the research projects that happen to land on on your desk, which, again, in of, in and of themselves were interesting, but but. I think that the richness, I, I still believe that being an academic is the best profession in the world with that freedom of choosing what we want to study. And the third one relates to perfectionism. One thing I realized, and I didn't realize it, by the way, at the time when I was a consultant, but more later on, is that um, with a consulting project, you know, the deadline arrives and you go and present to the client and you present it as, as if this is the truth. This is what, and you don't, you don't use the, the, the excuse of, if I had another month, I would give you a much better product, right? Mm -hmm. And part of the value with with being an academic is to have the paper sitting on your desk, sometimes even for half a year, not even touching it until you say, you know what, I think it's ready. Uh, And yes, it's a waste from all business perspective or any, almost any perspective besides your your feeling that, yeah, I think I'm now ready to say this is a complete project.
0: Um, So that led you into doing a PhD. And how did you choose your topics? Uh, How did you get interested in, let's say, CRM or consumer uh, dynamics, choice dynamics, and how did you get involved in text mining?
1: Yeah, so er- early on in, in, as you mentioned, early on in my career, I, I uh, and still do to some extent, but what worked a lot around CRM and particularly the notion of hidden Markov models and dynamic segmentation. Uh, and it started really from data. It started from observing data. And uh, I mean, at that time, um, all of us that have been during that time in, in, in the academic world of marketing, know that a lot of the empirical research was on scanner panel data, right? Coffee, yeah. tuna, and, and so on. And the data was, was fairly short. It was fairly kind of two years, if you will, of, of yeah. purchases of, of these. And we didn't want to use them necessarily much longer than that because we realized preferences may change because we often assumed mm-hmm. fixed preferences. And, and looking at these type of, of data, I, I, I was starting to look at donation data that was over 26 years. And ask myself, what's different here from most of the data that we use, which at the time was scanner panel data. And one of the things that came to mind is dynamics to say, I cannot and and do not want to assume that people stay the same over 26 years of being alumni from a university. And how am I going to look at the dynamics of that? And how am I going to model it? And indeed, um, if you look kind of in the, the kind of maybe historical perspective of the work in empirical work in marketing, we made great adva- advances in the 90s around heterogeneity. And in fact, marketing right. truly was one of the leaders in delivering it, not just within marketing, even outside. I mean, work right. by uh, people like Peter Rossi and Greg Allenby around Bayesian methodology or, or um, more of right. the uh, Wagner and Kamakura around latent class. Um, and it's in the 2000s when we started looking more rigorously at, at, at not just the fact that customers are different, but how do they change over time? And that's what I got interested in in it. The dynamic segmentation, right? From the perspective of a hidden Markov model. And then I would say circa 2006 to 2007 is when I, for for the first time, uh, with advances in in machine learning and so on, started to see an an opportunity in the fact that there is, most of the data we have for business purposes in fact, some estimates say eighty to ninety-five percent of the data we have for business purposes is not structured; it's not numbers.
0: I think the estimate is over ninety percent, but uh, yeah, uh, but it's still a very high number. Yeah,
1: yeah. So again, somewhere in the in the, in the vicinity of ninety or even higher. Yes, uh, right. it's actually Unstructured data; it's it's you know text, video, voice, images. Uh, right. And, and realizing that, that we have, we are not using this data just because we don't know yet how to analyze it. But at the same time, again, uh, circa 2006, 7 is when computer scientists have started developing better tools to to try and extract this data. Uh, and I started thinking, well, what can we do with it within our marketing? We have an, an improving hammer on the machine right. learning, computer science side.
0: Right. We have
1: tons of nails that are untouched so far within the business world and marketing. So what
0: what nails can you look for, right? So that's what you started looking around, is it?
1: Exactly, exactly. And and, and started doing this again back around 2007. uh, um, And then since then have been focusing a lot of my research originally in text. And in the last, uh, I would say two, three years also moved uh, now to images and video. Still interested very much in text. I think we are far from being done with leverage text, but, but also other sources of unstructured data.
0: So that takes me to your marketing science paper, 2012 paper, where you talk about mining your own business, not mind, mining, and uh, that's extraction of market structure uh, through NLP or natural language processing methods. So walk me through some of your key findings in that. What, uh, what did you find in your text mining analysis?
1: Yeah, so what, what we did in this paper, and again, this was one of the uh, the early papers of using text analysis in marketing, we started at the place that maybe was indeed the first place to start looking at, to say, if I have access to all of these uh, if, um, text on the web, social media, and particularly in that case, it was a um, Forums. So we have two, we had two applications in that paper. The main one was more around cars from edmunds.com. So the forums of discussion of cars. The second one came more from diabetes drugs and side effects of drugs. But specifically with the cars, we were looking at a very simple, actually, definitely in today's uh, methodology of, of analyzing text, a fairly simple uh, view of just how often cars are being mentioned with one another as a measure of similarity of, of the competitive uh, landscape uh, if you will of the of the cars just by how frequently people mentioned together cars.
0: two two cars are mentioned together would uh, constitute similar and thereby they may be competing with each other is that what your exactly. basic yeah. thought was yeah,
1: yeah so we simply count how often you know honda civic is mentioned with toyota corolla and we were able to do it simultaneously because we had nine hundred thousand messages from edmunds.com And we were able to do it simultaneously for 170 different car models and the similarity between them. And if you think about kind of the market structure analysis that we've been seeing up to that point in time, because it was mainly survey-based or even sales-based on a small sample, we would do it with a dozen of of products at the time. So really opening to to big data, right? Uh, This was 2012 is maybe the hype, if you will, of the big data, capital B, capital D. And being able to analyze these the similarities, we then compared it by the way to sales uh, data, um, particularly to card tradings to see, um, you know, if we think about it, who are these, these weird people who right. are writing this weird stuff on social media. <laughs> so we wanted to, to validate it and we compared it to car, car tradings. And, and actually to my surprise, the correlation was above 0.75, I think it was 0.76 or so between actual walk the walk, people go to the, the dealer and exchange their car to what they write okay. on social media. Uh, on, you know, on the, it is
0: very okay. interesting because previously in marketing research, we used to have, uh, you know, perceptual maps, brand similarity in a multidimensional scaling, which is basically measures of similarity, except that you used to use surveys to ask people to rate something similar. Here, you have a trove of information where people are uh, freely expressing two brands or more brands uh, together in the same paragraph sentence and so on, right? So what you're saying is now we can mine more data and uh, we don't have to go and do surveys yet get the similarity measures. Is that what you were finding?
1: Yes, yes. And, and, and there are several advantages, right? I mean, there, there is the advantage of, um, I, I'm not bounded by, for example, demand effect of, of surveys. I don't ask any question. I'm actually, I'm a fly on the wall listening right. to what people are writing, when they're writing it, when right. they decide to write it. Uh, the data keep coming in real time. So I have timestamp for each one of them. So we right, right. conducted this paper a little bit also of a more dynamic type of analysis to identify some of these uh, trends. The magnitude of the data is much larger than than typical right. surveys. And uh, the so richness
0: can, also, there's a lot right. of richness, right?
1: Right. Now, I'm not sure if we fully can let go of surveys. I mean, we have several complexities, right? One of them is the representativeness of
0: these. Representatives. I was going to say that. Yeah. So, we, so we you're not... finding that despite the representativeness bias of uh, social media data, it is still uh, um, quite predictive of uh, of many of the behaviors. Is that what uh, is a fair statement to make based on your yes. findings?
1: Yes. Now, I yeah. think it depends also on what you look at. We were looking at the market structure and, and, and conventions of cars, which right. means people with maybe extreme preferences may not be very different on that dimension. Yeah. If you were to look at problems, for example, it could be that you would get more experts, for example, online, and therefore may get slightly different uh, different results. Yeah, our particular it, right. application, we, we didn't see it. The other thing to keep in mind, even if these are, uh, so, to speak, to, uh, so to speak, weird people, you know, talking about weird mm-hmm. stuff in social media, platforms like Edmonds are being read by all of us. <laughs> so right, even, right. even if these are not representative, they affect the representative sample of consumers who, are, who go and buy. Right. So, uh, which may be one of the reasons why we find high correlations.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. But one of the questions the marketers wanna ask is to what extent does it give you additional insights over what is already known? So you mentioned the Honda Civic, Toyota Corolla being viewed as similar but, you know, marketers may already know that based on their own sales data or based on years of uh, experience. Uh, so is there, are there any additional insights that, uh, you know, mining social media data or the chatter uh, give you that you cannot get from conventional uh, data gathering methods or analysis methods?
1: Yeah, I think that, 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 that there are. I definitely think there are, and particularly given that, that there is a real-time flow of this source of data, right? I mean, the, yeah. again, think about it as we, particularly in that paper, analyzed forms, but today could be product reviews, could be, uh, right. um, I, I mean, other forms of, of uh, Facebook and so on, a, a type of data. There is an inflow of this data, which keeps coming in real time, which means we should be able to identify trends early on, for example, from Good. such data, we looked uh, um, at CARS core occurrence, but, but we also looked at what, what is mentioned with each one of these CARS. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know of, of good ways of quantifying that, right? Uh, we often do it, again, using focus group in a qualitative way. So part mm-hmm. of what text analysis allows us to do is to take the combined qual with quant, right? Combine the more qualitative research with quantitative one because we have so, mm-hmm. much, so much of this qualitative research that we can actually go and quantify it. And often new insights do come come out of this type of uh, research. And maybe to give you an example, we did a a recent research where we looked at um, loan default. So we looked at uh, people who applied for loan, this was peer-to-peer lending. So they wrote text on why they're asking for the loan. And then we had as a a dependent variable, we had, did they repay the loan or not? And we were looking for which words are predictive of of default. Default, Which words... Tend to appear in defaulting loan much more than mm-hmm. in non-defaulting loan, or the other way around, in, in more repaid loan versus loan. Uh, so it's so like loans. a classi-
0: classification problem, right? So correct machine learning, yeah.
1: Which is a classic okay. machine learning task, right? And yeah. um, yeah. and and we what we found was that there were several of the things that we would we would predict. For example, we found that you know the more um, hard, the, 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 the more you describe hardship in your life, whether financial hardship or personal hardship less likely people were to repay, right? More likely to default. Mm-hmm. But there are several things that were, we're, we're not actually necessarily expected. Uh, the type of, of nuggets or insights that we got from that analysis, for example, things like uh, whenever people uh, exhibited any uh, signs of deception, like writing longer. So deception often is characterized by longer language. Uh, mm-hmm. Whenever people uh, were talking, uh, people who, who, who deceive tend to talk more about the future and present and less about the past because the past is factual. And mm-hmm. uh, that was associated with uh, with default. Uh, those who defaulted actually were more polite. Mm-hmm. Hello, thank you, God bless you. The word God was twice as likely to appear in defaulted loans. Oh, that's a very
0: interesting uh, um,
1: finding. Yeah. Uh, um, extroversion, language of extroverts was associated with language of, dis- of, of default. Okay. Uh, which is consistent with some previous research that suggested that extroverts tend, to, tend often to uh, have financial problems because of their frivolous lifestyle. Okay. So some things were expected, others were more of the surprising, and it's kind of what you hope to find in research, right? You, you believe the data when, when a lot of the expected things come up, and then you find, uh, hopefully, a few of these really interesting nuggets.
0: Yeah, very. Thanks for sharing that. And I also managed to catch a glimpse of your paper on product reviews, which where you did a tremendous job, you and your co-authors, analyzing about 250 million reviews over 25 platforms. And I found it fascinating that uh, you confirmed that many of these uh, product reviews come from people with extreme views. But then you had some other interesting insights too. Please share those insights with us and unpack a few of them, if you can. Sure.
1: sure. So, so what we did in, the, in that paper is we looked at the, something that we already know, something that was known before our research was the fact that uh, we have this J-shaped distribution of reviews, meaning that there are a bunch of reviews at the four and five stars. Then there are a, a few reviews at the... At, at the middle and then a little bit of a spike coming up again at the one star type of reviews, right, which leads to the J-shaped distribution. Uh, but part of what we did in this research is for the first time, we did a, a very broad view of many platforms. We had a clear, a several dozen platforms um, where we looked at, uh, is it consistent across platforms? And if we start analyzing different platforms, when do we see this J, J-shaped distribution more or less? In, in a in terms of a, a prevalence in diff, a, across different platforms and different consumers okay. and what, what we found was that the the reason we, for this JS distribution the primary reason for it is something called self selection which is uh, people are are selecting when to review and and what we find is that it, you find this J distribution when the platform tends to have high self-selection, meaning people review only a few of their experiences and often highlights. They often, people often review the highlights of their um, experiences. And when we, for example, look at the number of reviews that every reviewer wrote, we found that those people that review more experiences, higher proportion of their true experiences tend to exhibit more of a normal distribution and less of a J-shape. We even uh, tested it in a more experimental setting. For example, we asked people, please rate the last book that you, ra- that you read, or please rate any book you would want to, to review for, for, for Amazon or for any other platform. And what we found that if, it, if you give you the option to choose which, which book you will review, you will find again the J-Shap. Either you'll review a, a great book or in some cases a horrible book, but rarely do right. yeah. When We ask you, please review your last book or your last restaurant that you visited. We found a total normal distribution and think, as, as things do behave in our life. Um, and then we, we, we develop a few ways of demonstrating how firms could try and encourage people to, to write more reviews and share more reviews. And once you do that, we actually get a truer picture of consumer preferences, which will be more helpful for- The um, yeah,
0: platforms, right? Also. The
1: platforms. So for example, one of our mm-hmm. recommendations for platforms is not just to give us the average reviews, the average, you uh, know, uh, uh, average rating, average rating. 4, 4, yeah, four point five stars, right? Right. But tell me what were, what were the average by people who review only once once or twice versus people mm-hmm. who review very frequently, or the minimum way the, the average by how many reviews people provided? Because those who provide more reviews provide more of a true distribution of their their experiences.
0: But you know, speaking about that, is it the platform's incentive to get truly normal distribution or? or non-J-shaped because they may actually be selling products uh, off uh, some of the vendors. And uh, you know if the vendors are rated highly, they might actually ca- keep coming to the platform. So there could be some incentive yeah. alignment issues, right?
1: That, that's a great point. And, and in fact, it didn't make it eventually to the paper, but we, we still have it somewhere and, and, and would probably uh, um, uh, publish it at yeah. some point. We were looking at some of the cases where where platform have an opportunity to remove reviews and ask do we see uh, do we see any bias there do we see for example just to give you a few examples of these um Yelp for example removes reviews that they are believe are, are, are not true review um true uh, reviews, reviews. Yeah. Uh, we look at these these fake reviews and ask do we find they're more extreme versus the one they don't we didn't find that we asked do do, do restaurants that advertise on uh, on Yelp receive more favorable, re- are the, is the removal different between a- advertisers who advertise on Yelp and not? We did not find right. evidence for that. Uh, we looked, for example, at Amazon products, like the the thing about Amazon Alexa and, and uh, Amazon Fire and so on. On Best Buy and on the Amazon website, we didn't find difference. So we looked at several cases where platforms maybe would have- We so you didn't anxiety. find any
0: systematic bias uh, in there?
1: We haven't, okay. this is not to say that platforms do not have the incentive and still keep in the big scheme of things, keep right. reviews positive, but we didn't find actually evidence at least for um, explicit as opposed to implicit, explicit deletion or of, of these reviews to Manipulation, create a more
0: positive. let's say, yeah, that, uh, rather than just deletion could be also addition. But that brings uh, into spotlight, sp- fake reviews. How do you detect fake reviews in your research? Uh, it's pretty hard, right? Uh, or did you have a kind of, a, do you develop an algorithm or some ways to exclude fake reviews or, or see their impact? Uh,
1: yeah, mm-hmm. um, first of all, you're right. It's a very tough problem. We, we, we are not yet, there are, there are several tools these days that, that, that attempt to do it. There, there is some really interesting research happening uh, around identifying them, whether it's from a more machine learning perspective, the text, or more from the incentive to do so. So trying to use more of when would company be more likely to, to engage in these uh, uh, to try and identify them. We we in the, in the research we've done we mainly follow the, the kind of platforms methodology to try and um, and eliminate eliminate them. We do uh, compare the, the the distribution of fake reviews versus not, and we do find a little bit more extreme distribution on fake reviews. But even in those that are more trustworthy, we still find a uh, uh, still, still the ship for the reason of the self-selection that I mentioned, uh, but this is still a problem for the industry and one that the industry still needs to, right. to resolve. And how do,
0: you, how do you differentiate between firm-induced fake reviews and bot-generated fake reviews? So sometimes firms could ask some writers to go and write a bunch of reviews, and then sometimes it could be generated by bots. Are, is, are there differences among these their, uh, effects? Uh, is there any any research that you or your co-authors have done or you're aware of? Yeah, it's, I mean, nothing that I've done
1: personally, but there is, again, some research going back to the research on deception that I mentioned earlier. Okay. Uh, okay. And what, Some of the things I found, for example, is that fake reviews tend to be longer. Right. Um, and again, when you don't know what you're talking about, you often talk for long, right? When you know what right. you want to say, it's very easy to... Uh, right. They found also in terms of how specific people have been in, in describing... Uh, what they're talking about, uh, deceptive language often has more. Um, people talk more in we and less in I when they mm-hmm. talk about deceptive language. And again, the the future, future and present tense versus past tense. So
0: deceptive. Right. right. Those are very, very, very insightful. But along the same lines, you know, juxtaposing the advances in uh, NLP, where we know now the emergence of BERT and uh, uh, GPT three, all of these are now. Uh, almost trying to uh, create uh, you know, expert-like reviews. And uh, so do you see the, uh, that we are now getting into a darker territory uh, in using this for managers? Because if anything, people can use all these advanced tools to generate uh, more fake reviews, right?
1: So I think like with anything in, in technology, I mean, privacy is an example, fake reviews is another. I think that there, there is still kind of a cat and mouse type of uh, race, right? Where yeah. uh, the platforms are becoming better and better with using not just the actual review, but where it came from and, and trying to detect uh, 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 the, the, the sources of the reviews. Uh, many platforms now include verified reviews. So you have to buy in order to write a review, or at least consumers know when the review is written by, by a verified consumer. Uh, so platforms and, and there's again a, a cat and a mouse type of race I would say between uh, the, the the fake reviews and the platforms to try and curb it and, and then as you say the, the, the bots are becoming much better in, in emulating what people are writing um, and I, again I believe we'll, we'll continue this this race right in trying to um, to, to Curb it on the one hand. And and I do believe that a a lot of the value will come not from the content, but rather from um, what we know about the people who actually write the reviews. And that's actually may help quite a bit.
0: Yeah, these are very excellent emerging insights. Now let me shift gears a bit, if it's okay with you, Odin, and talk a little bit about the new course that you've developed on developing a quantitative intuition. Uh, Tell us something about this and how did you come up with this course and what is this course all about?
1: Oh, yeah, great. Thanks. Uh, yeah, we are. Um, it's a course that I teach here at Columbia, uh, quantitative intuition. I teach it as a um, a course to our executive MBA. I also uh, have some exec ed program around it where the the idea there is we, we identify I teach it, by the way, together with a couple of colleagues, uh, uh, actually from a couple of practitioners, colleagues from the world of practice. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, one of them is from American Express. The second one is from Google, uh, uh, Chris Frank and Paul Mignon. And um, what we identified in this course, we identified that there is actually a gap in, in the market, in the executive market, if you will, um, where we generated a whole generation of data scientists. Uh, we have infused the market. And if originally it was mainly the tech companies, it was mainly you know, the Googles and uh, Amazon Facebook. and Facebooks of the world. Now it's, it's much wider, right? Now we have a lot of the CPG companies, uh, have a whole data science team and so on. And the gap was not even in managing this data science team but think about those who graduated you know good 10-15 years ago and are now just working in these companies where they're consuming reports that are generated by uh, data science teams are consuming many more um, uh, data they need to make data driven decisions right. and, and they're ill-equipped because when they went <laughs> To, to business school or or, or even to, to their undergrad, they were not taught with this type of uh, mindset of, of big data and data-driven decision-making. So we develop a course where we don't teach a single um, data analysis tool. We don't teach you data science. We don't teach you what uh, machine learning is. But what we do focus on is given that you consume a table, you consume a graph, you consume an output that comes from data, uh, from data analysis or data science, how do we make decisions with data? And we focus on three pillars in, in, in what we call quantitative intuition. And the idea of quantitative intuition means you're going to combine your quantitative together with your intuition or business acumen. And uh, the three pillars are uh, precision questioning, so being able to ask the right question, and, um, you know, we believe that the smartest person in the room is not the one that always has the right answer, but the one actually that asks the really smart question, right? How often we right. are impressed by the person with the really good questions. And so we find that, that um, uh, one of the illnesses of many of these data-driven journeys are that people are starting the journey with, oh, we have so much data. Let's see if there is something interesting in the data. Rather than starting with a problem or even better with a decision tree. What is the decision <laughs> you're trying to make? And let's <laughs> now go back to the data and see if the data can help me make that decision. Right. Um, so that's the, the precision questioning. Then the second pillar is around uh, what we call pattern recognition, Ide- right. learning to identify pattern and, and critically evaluate data, how to become a first interrogator of data. And the last pillar is what we call holistic view or parallel view in which we discuss uh, how to become synthesizer of data. So one of the tendencies of, of both data analysts as well as managers, is to summarize, to say, well, what I see in the data is A, B, and C. Uh, But rather than telling me the facts of the data, try to put it together. And here is where quantitative intuition is important, the intuition part. Together with your business acumen, what is the synthesis of the data as opposed to the summary of the analysis, as opposed to the summary? And how do you go and and develop more of a a story from from what you find in the data? Right.
0: And connected back to your uh, questions and decisions to be made, right? The decision tree, right? Correct. So, and try and say, hey, because of what I've, uh, you know, synthesized, this is going to be my decision path, right? Is that what you're trying that, to get to? Yeah. That's
1: exactly it. And in fact, already at the the, the, the problem formulation, when I define the decision,
0: I'm right.
1: already laying out the full process of, the, of the, the, the data-driven journey to say, I need this data. And this is, I mean, and in synthesizing these, I keep in mind the decision, not just, Oh, did, did I find here any interesting insights? But rather, does it help me to, to to solve the problem that I defined in the start? And if you don't define the problem in the start, you don't need to worry about synthesis. But it also won't lead you anywhere with with all Excellent. Of this. Yeah, I think
0: that is uh, what I um, fully agree with you. I also do something, um, you know, strategic uh, um, data science, so which is basically what you are doing, uh, which is really getting those. Uh, uh, business acumen together with the uh, uh, data science methods into making uh, decisions of strategic impact. So that's wonderful. Uh, let's talk a little bit about you know we, you've summarized all your research journeys, the wonderful insights, and and this new course. Uh, but how is Oded uh, Netzer as a person? Who's Oded apart from? the fact that he's a nerd as you yeah. yourself described what else yeah. do you do i know that you mentioned that you you like soccer what else do you do like for fun yeah, so, i
1: mean uh, again spending spending time with my family i have a 15 year old uh, daughter and, and 12 year old twins uh, so oh, and again you're a busy man yeah. very much enjoyed uh, the the spending a little bit more time with them during the, the pandemic, if there was, again, as I mentioned, a silver lining. And the other thing that I don't get to do, but I, I didn't get to do in the last year and a half, but I very much enjoy is traveling. Um, okay. And uh, I, I Visiting very much places, it. yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. seeing different places and, and and traveling around the world. I can't wait to to do that again.
0: Hopefully, with the, um, in a couple of years down the line, we'll be back to normal. Uh, but on that note, uh, you know what message would you have for our, our audience who are who comprise a cross section of people: their former students, current students, executives, policy uh, makers, um, diverse sets of people here. What your what would be your message for them as they are trying to navigate this pandemic, get out of it? Uh, what should they be focusing uh, on? Uh,
1: I mean. I think we live in a really exciting times. We live in a really exciting times in the sense that the, the, things are very dynamic. Uh, things okay. are changing a lot. A lot yeah. of new sources of data, a lot of new tools, and particularly when it comes to, to um, the area that, that I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm interested in, the area of, of data-driven decision-making, both in terms of data and in terms of tools and it can be intimidating to live in these exciting times because it means you need to constantly learn you need to constantly up, upgrade and upgrade update yourself, yourself yeah. Yeah. Uh, with all of these uh, and new techniques but it's also a, 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 such an opportunity because you know if you live in a static times it's very hard to move <laughs> you yeah. are you always keep keep chewing the same thing over and over again whereas we have the opportunity of to be more dynamic, yeah. Being able to move things, being able to learn how do we leverage, for example, we started with text, now we move towards learning how how do we deal with images? Well, Mm -hmm. video is just a bunch of images, so I have dynamic aspect to to images. On top of that, you can put voice. So I think there is a great... Take the, the challenge, but make it an opportunity, right? Uh, yeah. Again, it is a challenge, but it's also a great opportunity. I mean, one of the, the quotes that I like to, to quote with respect to that is that uh, what really distinguishes good leaders today is the ability to see what everybody else is seeing, but thinking what nobody else have, has thought. Um, and it's it's the, the, the data and the tools that allows us to, you know, big data means we probably all look, look at exactly the same thing. But 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 with the different tools, we're actually able to maybe get different insights uh, from them. The mm-hmm. other thing I would mention is um, enjoy the journey, not just the outcome, right? I think that a lot of the value comes through the journey of yeah. of, um,
0: of discovering something of, right of, of, new.
1: Of, yeah. of discovering, yes, and and yeah. um, you know, <laughs> and I think it's I I know all of, of all of famous quotes. Are often I associate to either Confucius, Confucius or Mark Twain, right? Uh, Choose a, do- a job you love, and you'll never uh, have to work a day in your life. And true, I think. I, I, again, I've heard it attributed to either uh, Confucius or Mark Twain. Um, if you focus on the journey, I think you are in that business, right? And again, yeah. I think academic job work is uh, is in line yeah. with that. Uh, the other thing, maybe, I would suggest to people that are. Uh, dealing with data with more of a data science problems. Uh, a, start with a problem, don't start with the data, don't ask yourself, oh, I have this exciting data, let me make sure I, I use it, right? Or, or with a tool for that matter. I have this really cool tool, let me make sure. Uh, uh, so start with a nail, not with a hammer. And the mm-hmm. second is, um, ask what surprised you. When I go to a data analyst, it comes to or a t- doctoral student who come to, to tell me about what their journey over the last couple of weeks since our last meeting. I often ask them, tell me one or two things that surprised you in the analysis, and you'll be surprised how fast that cuts straight to the chase, to the interesting stuff. By the way, it can lead to two outcomes. Either they're gonna tell you uh, something really interesting and surprising, or they're gonna tell you something that is a mistake, but maybe you will help them find out the mistake, that's why it's surprising. But either way you benefit from either finding very fast a mistake or finding something.
0: super. very good, yeah. So be uh, on the lookout for surprising insights. is a good uh, suggestion. So where do you see the future uh, now that you're saying that approach it with the exciting journey in mind, where do you think we are headed? Uh, what do you think uh, five years from now, managers should be doing differently 10 years from now? Um, uh, and also uh, a whole bunch of managers who are stakeholders in this also in retailing. So what do you think it, it would be different five to 10 years from now for those managers in, in different industries?
1: So I, I think we'll, we'll 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 see much more of unstructured data being used in business. I think we'll see, again, a lot of, of I think the richest, by the way, is text. Uh, despite the fact that they say that a, a picture is worth a thousand words, the richness that we do find in text or, or voice, for that matter, if it's a conversation, is immense. And I, I do think we'll see much more of that being used and, and leveraged. Um, though, again, I do warn, I don't want to warn against using it for the sake of using it, start again with a with a question, avoid the streetlight effect where we tend to use data that is available yeah. and more ask yourself, what is the problem I need to, to solve? A, and, and think about a firm growth, things like customer lifetime value or customer mm-hmm. equity and ask yourself, how can data helps me grow my business, right? As opposed to, oh, I have all of this data and it's great data. So uh, don't use the data for, or the tools for the sake of the data or the tools. Uh, but, but I think there is great opportunities there. And ask yourself, how could they help? Uh, in the maybe short, shorter term, I think we'll, we'll start seeing um, really interesting uh, advances around privacy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, for example, I mean, just coming very soon with Apple uh, uh, restricting uh, third-party data. I think right, we start right. seeing for example a host of modeling efforts to say how can I build a model from first party data to complement the third party data right i mean if when I, when I still observe third party data i can use it to calibrate first party data that predicts whether you've you've been to the competitor website for example okay. uh, so i think we'll see some some advances there another one around maybe going back to my my uh, earlier work on CRM um, I think we'll be moving from customer lifetime value to social customer lifetime value.
0: Uh-huh. Uh,
1: if you think about how much we understand influence, I think we are fairly in early days of that. Uh, okay. what, whereas we are using social data, we are not fully understanding social influence
0: okay. um,
1: in, in a in a in a in a way the that whole like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think we'll we'll see more of, of that. I suspect that with the 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 research in the next few years, we'll have much more to to say about that in a, in a more rigorous way than, than, than probably what we've seen anecdotal way than what we've seen.
0: That's excellent. That's an excellent advice and prediction for the future. On that note, Odette, I wanna thank you again for sharing your insights. It's absolutely delightful talking with you. I wish you all the very best in your future research efforts and also innovative teaching courses or concepts that you may evolve over time. Thank you again.